Here we go. September 18, 2011, lecture discussion number uh, intermission, review four. That's where we are. So we have left uh, our 45 lectures on Romans to do this intermission that has been requested by many people so that I can get it into the record. And uh, today will be the companion lecture to the September 11, 2011 discourse which was last week, as you would know, for those of you who are following along by Internet or by CD. And what I mean by that is that today will require the listener uh, to be somewhat familiar with the previous Sunday in order for it to be fully understood. Uh, uh, that, of course, presupposes that any class I teach can be fully understood. And I, I know there's great dispute and controversy that surround uh, the understanding me and they swirl and all that such, but grant me uh, out of kindness or pity, whichever the hypothetical, that it can be understood by somebody out there somewhere and that they will need September 11th in order to understand today's, and that's the case. So if you weren't here last week or if you're not familiar with the Hebrew betrothal ceremony, uh, I will do my best to keep you uh, uh uh, on board, but again, it, it, it would be nice if you were here last week or if you have the CD, and that, of course, is available. Uh, who do we see for CDs? Jane, as usual. Okay. Who points at Lori, as usual? But if you would like to get last week's CD, uh, see Jane or Lori, uh, or both. Okay. Um, we left off in our review last week uh, of the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony, uh, and it is in your bulletin. So you can open your bulletin up and you can see those 12 steps so I don't have to read them back into the record again or put them on the board. This is not those steps. What this is is what is things in Scripture that have the context of the Hebrew 12-step um, uh, betrothal marriage ceremony. And last week I left off somewhere around and about step one, two, uh, four, and five, which means I pretty much uh, was just firing in every direction. I was just scattergunning as much as I could out there, not going in any order, just blasting away in my little attempt to include as many references as I could that I knew that you would need. And I was doing that because I was trying to demonstrate how this pattern, this betrothal pattern, this marriage ceremony 12-step pattern designed by God, God-given, how it is all over the Bible. And a careful student, once they know this pattern and once they know that it is everywhere, a careful student can then find it everywhere in the Bible, and mostly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Many of the cryptic things, or the mysterious things, if you will, the ones that people don't understand, that Christ said, have a marriage betrothal context. And if you don't know that, then you look at what he says, and you don't understand what he says. And it's as simple as that. Yeah. And it's very much similar to the Passover pattern, or what I also call the Passover template, which is also called the sign of Jonah. Jesus Christ says to the Pharisees, Matthew, after the Matthew 12 rejection of his Messiahship, which is called the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, let me repeat that again. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when the nation of Israel in Matthew 12 reject Jesus Christ as God Messiah on the basis that he is really Satan. 
That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be done by an individual. It can only be done by a nation when Christ is physically present before them. So you cannot commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sorry if you think you can. And I'm not really sorry. That's a fake sorry, as you know. Yeah, just a second. Let me finish this and then I'll go to Joel's question. This is a, this happens all the time when I do this, but his response to that rejection was the sign of Jonah, which is part of this Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, which is part of the Passover pattern. And if you don't know that the sign of Jonah is contained in the Passover pattern, and you see him say to that adulterous generation, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, and you don't attach it to the Passover pattern, you won't understand what he's trying to say. Go. Yeah, and the unfor- yeah, that's correct. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, also called the unforgivable sin, cannot be committed by an individual. It can only be committed by a nation. The nation to whom the Messiah came, Matthew 12. No, the unforgivable sin is... Uh, now, here we go. I'm gonna, that's okay. Um, the unforgivable sin, uh, what's called the unforgivable sin, is the rejection of the Messiah by a nation. And it has no individual application whatsoever. Okay? It's a national thing, not an individual thing. Now, if you've not heard that before, I don't know what to say. It's a shame. There are many, many churches out there that will tell you that it is an individual act that you can commit. And no, you cannot. They'll write me letters here pretty soon, but they only write me one, and then they don't argue anymore. But I wanted to just point out to you that the Hebrew pattern and the Passover pattern or template, they're very similar. And what I'm wishing for you to know or to grasp today, one of my major points here, is that the Hebrew betrothal marriage ceremony pattern and the Exodus Passover sign of Jonah Seder pattern they are not only individually necessary for you to know in order to correctly interpret scriptural events and doctrine. If you don't know them, let me put it another way. If you don't know these two patterns, you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't know what you don't know, you go through the Bible and you just end up in a ditch. It's as simple as that. But also, In other words, you're not going to correctly interpret scriptural events and doctrine. You just won't. And and it's a shame. I know the church has failed here. It is not your fault. It will be the church who is at fault. They have stopped teaching things that were taught to everyone in the 1900s. Everyone. We have stopped today. We now do itching ears and fables and fake stories and chicken soup and all that other. I'm ranting, aren't I? Okay. I also need you to know that these two patterns, Hebrew betrothal pattern, the Passover, sign of Jonah, Exodus pattern, templates, whatever you wish to call them, they're really two halves. They're two pieces of one whole. 
And what I mean by that is I'm submitting to you that these two systems, both of whom are placed into the culture of the Hebrews. They, he marinated Israel in, with these two patterns. He soaked them in it. Their whole culture, their, every bit of their lives are in these two patterns. They're, they're, someday they're going to wake up and say, God put us, put these two things into our very nature. We do parts of these things and we don't even know why. The, Israeli, the, the Israelites, as I said, are just marinated in them. They're the marriage ceremony and the Passover pattern. And when you combine the two, you see that they're two halves. You make one key, or if you want two keys that open one lock, you unlock the largest portion of Scripture that's there. People come to me all the time and they say, uh, uh, old, funny-looking person, I can't understand the Bible. And I say back to them, do you know the Hebrew betrothal ceremony? And I go, never heard of it. Do you know the Passover, Exodus, sign of Jonah pattern? No. Well, then you're not going to understand your Bible very well. You get enough to get saved, he'll take care of you. But you will go through life frustrated as a Bible student. And I, I say that as often as I can and not often enough. And last week I brought up the Dinah incident in Genesis 34. And I compared Dinah to uh, the rape of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 because they have this terrific uh, application or context of the betrothal pattern. You will see steps two and step five. The bride price is established and agreed upon by the father. That's step two. Step five, the bride must give her consent. Okay, Both Dinah and Bathsheba are taken. They're abducted. Both the Bible's very clear. Do not think that Bathsheba in any way is guilty uh, of some wicked, adulterous act. The Bible honors her. And you'll go through all kinds of studies and you'll see all kinds of movies and stuff that do the opposite of that. It's simply not in the text. Look at my lectures on those. You will see the, the, the fact that Bathsheba gives birth to two sons, both of whom are types of Christ. It's an extraordinary honoring of her. And her husband, Uriah, is extraordinarily a type of Christ in obedient sacrificial death for his bride. They are honored in Scripture. Not condemned. Okay? And the Bible is clear that both Dinah and Bathsheba are taken they're abducted. Look down at, at uh, step 11. The bridegroom abducts the bride for a seven. Okay? Step 11. The bridegroom abducts the bride and consummates the marriage. That's what's happening there. Within the wedding chamber. And then they emerge after this seven days. Okay? So keep that in your mind when you read Dinah and Bathsheba. In Dinah and Bathsheba's case, they were taken by force. So it doesn't fit with a bridal, if you will, a wedding pattern in the sense that it is a, that they gave consent. They did not give consent. And both were taken by whom? Who took, who took Dinah? Do you remember? I just did this not too long ago. Who took her? That's why I'm bringing it up because I'm hoping it still rings in your memory. Shechem. Who is Shechem? He is the son of Hamar. Who is Hamar? He's the king. This is the son of the king takes Dinah. So I have a son of a king. And who is David? He is king. So I don't have anybody taking these two girls. I have 
very powerful men taking them. And they took them by force, by powerful kings or the son of the king. Both David and Shechem acted wickedly, and the Bible says so. However, we can still see and find elements of the betrothal pattern. That's what I'm hoping to do for you today. In both of these heinous rapes of these young women, the price paid in in the case of Dinah, the price paid, the price demanded, if you will, after the fact, after the rape of Dinah, the, the price paid is circumcision. The price paid in the case of of Bathsheba is the death of Uriah and the death of the child born. When I say the death of the child born, you should immediately say to yourself, that is Jesus Christ. Bathsheba gave birth to the death of the child born and she gave birth to Solomon, the wise king. Two sons, both of them, the first advent of Christ or the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ as the wise king of the world. All of those, by the way, speak of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Circumcision does, the death of Uriah does, the death of the child born does, speaks of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the blood, the substitutionary death. Okay. Now, notice step one, the choosing. The bride is supposed to be selected by the father, but, but both David and Shechem are both described as seeing and then taking. Seeing and then taking. I don't have room to put it on the board. But if I say to you, seeing and taking, what do you think? Genesis. Eve saw the fruit, took it. Seeing and taking is a very important connection always in Scripture. When you see seeing and then taking, pay attention. There's something going on. By the way, why did the Holy Spirit put what he put in the Bible? It's omniscient God. He uses mankind as an instrument, and he puts in the Bible what he thinks is what? Relevatory of the glory of God and the character of God and useful and applicable to you. So it is not a coincidence that all of these things interconnect. He would do that, wouldn't he? He's God. He would make sure it all fits together for you. So when you see these things, know they connect to something. The whole Bible is that way. So anyway, David and Shechem are described as seeing and taking. They are the selectors, if you will. Here is where this process becomes perverted. Both kings bypassed the father's selection of the bride, obviously, and they took these two young women by force. But then both have to do what? After they have done what they've done, they're both in a position where they have to do something. What is it? They have to negotiate, don't they? Shechem and Hamer, uh, Hamer, Hamer with Jacob and the sons of Jacob. This negotiation occurs. I, I've done this thing to your daughter. I want to keep your daughter. And so now I'm going to negotiate what? What is he going to negotiate with Jacob and the sons? He's going to, yeah, he's going to negotiate a price. Well, what's that? Step two. He's going to ne- negotiate a price. And both sides are going to have to agree on this price. Hi, I raped your daughter. I got him holding her captive. And I'm here to pay for it. How's that working for you? David, who did he have to negotiate with? He had to negotiate with the husband of Bathsheba. His trusted, loyal, mighty man. Uriah. And ultimately, he has to negotiate with Joab. And Joab 
is not somebody you want to negotiate with. That is a brutal man. Very complex, brutal man. And, at the, and with both negotiations, Hamar with Jacob and the sons of Jacob and David with Uriah, in each, the negotiations end with treachery and death. And interestingly, both Shechem and David use marriage as a means to atone for raping Dinah and Bathsheba or to cover up what they did. Hopefully, they can cover it up. And I bring this up again this week because these are perhaps the two most known cases in Scripture where the Hebrew marriage ceremony pattern um, uh, has this violated uh, context to it. Both girls were defiled instead of cleansed. See step seven. The bride must be cleansed in a mikvah. Okay? But instead of that, the girls were defiled. Where the consent of the bride, uh, uh, step uh, um, five, was disregarded. They were, de- In fact, it was denied by force. There was no consent of the bride, and there was no permission from the father, certainly no permission from the husband. And thus, Genesis 34 and 2 Samuel 11 and 12, they stand in contrast, but are nonetheless filled with these 12 steps. Not every one, not every step, but the steps are there. Certain steps are there. Uriah, for example, is what? As I said, he is a what? He is a trusted servant. Hamar and Jacob negotiate a price and a contract as well as marriage and marriages. Marriage is all over that negotiation. We'll take your wives or your daughters we'll intermarry with your tribe or whatever, your kingdom. We have all of that. Consent is required with Hamar and Jacob. Both were going to agree to it. The two tribes are going to intermarry and gifts are offered and the men of Shechem must undergo circumcision. By the way, do you see the connection between circumcision and cleansing and sanctification. Circumcision is a, is a, um, remember I told you that whenever you see circumcision in the Bible, you can replace it with what? Christ crucified. You can literally take out the word circumcision and input the word, or words Christ crucified. Because circumcision is a picture, it is a type, it is a symbol of Christ crucified. So, Notice the connection between circumcision and cleansing. Uh, Step uh, uh, seven. The sons of Jacob come boldly into Shechem and they take Dinah from her place in Shechem's home where she is being held, where she is in what? Set apart. And they come boldly in. And Nathan, back to David now, informs David of the established price for what he has done to Bathsheba. And the child born dies, doesn't he? How long? How long does he die? Seven days. Lives for seven days. Well, let's go down here to, uh, oh my, step 11. And after seven days, David finally does something. What does he do? He eats. Oh, well, let's go down here in marriage 12, or step 12. The marriage supper. 
And the cleansing of Bathsheba is mentioned in that story and you will pass over it and not notice it. I shouldn't say pass over it, should I? You will go over the top of it and not notice the cleansing of Bathsheba. It's mentioned in there as it almost seems like an, uh, a throwaway sentence, but you know better, don't you? There is nothing irrelevant in Scripture. Everything is there by God's decree. Find out why that is mentioned. Why is it that Bathsheba's cleansing is prominent? Because it is a prominent element. But, uh, you know, the thing that always interested me is Uriah. Uriah was, is such an incredible uh, picture of honor in this book. A picture of sacrifice or in this uh, uh, chapter of Samuel. Uriah, this great man, after a journey, he's steadfast. He's not going to go to his bride. Not going to do it. You can't make him do it. David tries to get him wiped out drunk. Won't work. Offers him gifts. Won't work. And and I said in that lecture a few months ago that obviously Uriah knew what was going on. Do you think the people that are loyal to him, that live in his house, that are watching over Bathsheba, who was taken by the king and defiled, do you think those people didn't tell Uriah? He knew. You need to approach that story as, as understanding that Uriah was completely aware of what he was walking into and, the, and how he had to work his way through this. If the king says that Bathsheba has, has came to him and seduced him and committed adultery to, with him, then Bathsheba is what? Put to death. If he does not say that, the king is put to death. Who's going to believe the girl? Who's going to believe the king? Uriah knew that was the, that was the, the trap that he is in. What does he do? He makes a decision not to go to his wife. He says, I will not do this thing, right? And ultimately, he would not cover David's evil. And he knew what was going on. And ultimately, Uriah obediently goes to his death to save Bathsheba. Because as soon as he's dead, then Bathsheba and David can can be married, right? If you will. And David is under penalty of death. And Bathsheba under penalty of death. Leviticus 20.10. And if David accuses, which was likely because he was acting so... God calls it great wickedly Evil. He just calls it evil. He says displeased in a lot of your Bibles, but if you will, your translations, but if you'll study that word, you'll see it's evil. Okay? Because I've been long aware of the betrothal pattern, I've wondered about Uriah and Bathsheba. What, what do you think I've always wondered about? You can chime in here. It's okay. If I'm getting in trouble... Uh, with time, I'll, I might say something to you, or if I don't want to forget what I'm about to say, uh, I will put you off a second. But as long as you stay in the pattern here or into the text, it will be fine. Uh, I forget what I say a lot now. It's just the way it is. Lori is very afraid it's going to get worse. I know that by drinking Diet Coke and, and eating Worcestershire sauce right out of the bottle, that I'm staving off Alzheimer's and Anything else? At least that's my plan. And as you know, my mother has Alzheimer's. So I worry about not being able to keep everything together. But anyway, 
help me with this. I've been looking at Uriah for years, and I've wondered about him because he's so extraordinary. And so I asked this question, the obvious question I want to know. Since the marriage betrothal was all over this story in kind of a convoluted, violated way, I asked this question. When I am legally as a Jew, if a Hebrew, when a Hebrew man, a bridegroom, is betrothed to his wife, that betrothal process lasts for how long, do you know? Either one year or two years. So I want to know. Had Uriah and Bathsheba consummated that marriage? Had David grabbed a legally betrothed woman, which is called a wife, legally in the Hebrew? Had he taken a betrothed woman, young woman, who had not been consummated by her husband? And did Uriah know that by the time he finished his journey? I believe he did. He's not stupid. He's a mighty man. And all of a sudden, the king who didn't go out to battle calls him back. He's at war at the time. He knew. How does he deal with it? And he dealt with it in a way that God uses as a type of Christ. It's an extraordinary story. So I asked that question. Were they in the legally betrothed position waiting a year? In the set apart, are they in the uh, the bride consecrated? Because that's why that cleansing is in there prominently with Bathsheba. She's being cleansed. It calls her. It says she's being cleansed. That makes me think that's not the mikvah. That's the consecration. That's the set apart. That's just me. Had the marriage been consecrated, were Uriah and Bathsheba at step nine? When King David takes her. And Uriah's actions are indicative of a man who fully understands the severity of the situation and the consequences. He has journeyed home with a processional. And he is exhorted to go to the bride, but he will not do it. And he's fully aware that that then the only solution to this problem, when he will not go to Bathsheba, the only solution is his own death in order for his defiled wife to be saved. If he doesn't die, his defiled wife is subject to the death penalty. Because what? She's pregnant now, and it is not King David's. I'm sorry. It is not Uriah's. I said that badly. She's pregnant, and it is not Uriah's. So therefore, it is going to be King David's. And that means that Uriah... Bathsheba is executed and David denies anything at all and he lives if he chooses to do that. And every indication is is that that's what would have happened. So Uriah has to allow himself to be killed in battle. And I hope you see the comparison. Let me repeat it because I got ahead of myself. Uh, Uriah, his only solution is his death in order for his defiled wife to be saved. I hope you see that um, picture of Christ there. I hope you recognize that. Except Christ did not become defiled in the sense uh, that Adam did with Eve. I hope you see Adam at the same time. Okay? Um, yes. Always commit. Right here. Mary and Joseph right here. 
See, that's why I put this whole list on the board so that you can begin to see. Here's David and Bathsheba right here, right? Okay. Do I have Dinah on there somewhere? Where's Dinah? I left out Dinah. Well, Dinah should be in there somewhere. We'll put her over here at 6A. Because Dinah connects right to David and Bathsheba. They're almost identical stories, and I expect that, by the way. But anyway, I hope you see uh, Christ, uh, the typology of Christ that is there. I hope you see it with Adam and Eve. Both uh, Adam and Uriah were confronted with a defiled wife under death, and they made a decision, a thoughtful decision. And someone whose actions are called evil by God. God calls their actions evil. Uh, uh, Both are rulers are in the midst of the Adam-Eve and Uriah Bathsheba. Because in the Adam-Eve story, who do I have that's a ruler that God has called his actions evil? I have Satan. And in the Bathsheba story, who do I have that's in the Satan position? King David. He's called evil. And you're going to find, anyway, all of that as an aside to get you uh, to search for and recognize these 12 steps that are in your bulletin in every book of the Old Testament. And you'll find these 12 steps throughout as the Jewish wedding pattern is one of the major themes. It is the other template in the Old Testament and the New as well. And if you begin finding it in the Old Testament, then you will find it in the New Testament. And then insight and discernment and context and doctrinal clarity, especially about the Godhood of Christ. You'll begin to answer those things that I brought brought up last week or perhaps the week before, I forget. Uh, But I said, uh, Christ says things that confuse people. The Father is greater than I. Well, if you don't know that's a Hebrew betrothal ceremony context, you might think something that is wrong. What would you might think? You might think that the Father is somehow greater than, than the Son, and they are both the same. There is sameness. They are both God. How can they be the same, yet one be greater? Only the Father knows. They're both omniscient. If you don't understand that only the Father knows is uh, verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 9, not verse, step 9, got to tell you something really fast. I'm exhausted. Do you know why I'm exhausted? I'm working a lot. And it's not going to stop. I need to say this really quickly. I got 30 days in a row, Lori. I looked at the calendar. 30 days in a row, no day off, not one. And I'm going to be wiped out. That's why I want to do this, hang this stuff on a Sunday, because that's already a work day. I'll put some more work with it. But it's going to be tough on me, and I'm starting to get wobbly-legged already. And, um, and there's nothing I can do about it. It's that time of year, and you, you, you make hay while the sun's shining, right? That's what we're going to do. So just be aware that when you call me in and say, um, I, you know, whatever, I may be uh, doing what I'm doing now, which is just kind of blundering my way through things. Don't expect coherency, I guess. I should stay away from nail guns and machinery, but I'm doing the exact opposite. Uh, hence the story about racing the... Uh, the uh, man lifts at 25 feet in the air. That would be fun right now. Okay. If you find them in the Old Testament, you're going to solve these problems that you come up with in the New Testament. If you think 
that Christ, who is omniscient, does not know when he will come for his own bride. He's omniscient God. He knows. He isn't saying to you that he doesn't know. He's saying to you that this process, the question was, when are you coming for your bride? Ultimately, if you boil it down, he says to them, step 11. But he says it in a way that they understand it. And we don't understand it because we're what? We're lazy. We don't learn the the pattern. We don't learn the language. We don't know anything. And we come away with some position that Christ is not omniscient. And that, by the way, is blasphemy. That's heresy. It is wicked if you think that. You have the wrong Christ if you think that he is not omniscient or, or omnipotent or omnipresent. So knowing the wedding pattern, it's armor against doctrinal error. Okay? Now let's look at a couple more of these steps while we have a little bit of time and ask the obvious questions. Find where God has placed them in his word. So get your bulletin out here. We're going to all read it together. Also, always keep in mind that any comprehensive study of the uh, of the wedding steps must include the bill of divorcement or the divorcement steps. You've got to also know that there are steps to the divorce. And remember, when we're doing stuff like that, who is Israel here? Israel is the wife of YHVH, or I'm going to say Jehovah for you. Israel is the wife of Jehovah, wife. Who is Jehovah? God. So Israel is the wife of God. Okay, The church is the espoused or the betrothed bride of Christ. Who is Christ? God. So Israel is the wife of God and the church is the bride of God. Okay, So far so good? And that can be confusing. This truth has escaped most of Christianity and most of Judaism. Very, very few scholars have figured that out. And that's not that hard. I could do you a test right now. You now know more than 95% of all seminarians teaching today. As sad as that is. Entire denominations have been constructed that are oblivious to that one thing that I just gave you. That Israel is the wife of God and that the church is the bride of God. Or Israel is the wife of Jehovah and the church is the bride of Christ. Okay? Entire denomination been construction that are oblivious to that distinction. And Israel has been given a bill of divorcement. Why was Israel given a bill of divorcement? Because of adultery. By the way, Israel paid to have adultery. Usually, uh, as a prostitute, it's in Ezekiel. It's something that Arnold Fruchtenbaum has brought up so very well. If you ever want to get his book on the bill of divorcement, which I would recommend that you do. He pointed out, and if you, some of you who went through my Ezekiel study will remember this. Um, how many years ago was that? Ten? Has anybody left from the Ezekiel study? Hi, Bonnie and Bill. That's Bonnie and that was on a Wednesday night, wasn't it? I wonder if there's any record of it. But anyway, the, I made a, a point then that, uh, that is absolutely the case. Israel, as a prostitute, did not collect money from her um, suitors, if you will. She gave them money. So it was an inverse prostitution system. That is what God calls Israel. Even today, she's still there. She is in the punishment phase of the divorcement uh, steps. 
Okay, She's been given a, a bill of divorcement after she had a separation from God. By the way, how long of a separation did she have? Do you know? Before he issued the bill of divorcement? It was 100 years. I'm going to say 100 years to you. What are you going to say back to me? You're now going to go through the Bible and find out everywhere there's a hundred years, aren't you? And compare all the hundred years together, you'll solve lots of questions. Lots of really cool questions. Do you know in the millennium that if you do not accept Christ, who's right there on the throne in Israel, if you don't accept Christ, what happens to you at a hundred years? Yes, you die in the millennium. Ever wonder why a hundred years? It's in the divorcement steps, which is tied to the marriage ceremony, right? If you understand the divorcement and the marriage ceremony, you'll understand why the hundred years, and then you'll solve one of the most incredible questions you could ever want to know, and that is, how long from the fall of Satan to the creation of Adam? See how easy this is once you have the keys? Simple. Piece of pie, easy as cake. So anyway, Israel is awaiting its new marriage contract. That um, It has gotten its divorcement after a hundred year separation and it, because of the violation of its marriage contract. By the way, where is the marriage contract in the Bible between Israel and God? Where is it? It is the book of Deuteronomy. The entire book of Deuteronomy is a marriage contract. All of it between Israel and God. And because there, and it talks about the blessings of the marriage and the consequences of adultery, by the way. Okay? So Israel is now in this punishment phase and it's awaiting its new marriage contract. And that's Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And it's remarriage with restored blessings. So Israel is without the blessing of its marriage contract right now because of adultery. And the church is not in a marriage. The church is in a betrothal period now, not yet consummated. The church is being cleansed. The church is being sanctified. And it's being made pure. And eventually the church will be dressed in white, right? And presented to the bridegroom. Where's the bridegroom right now? He's departed. Oh, there it is. The bridegroom has departed. Step eight. The church has been set apart and is now waiting for the shafar, the shout and the catching away of the bride, the consummation and the marriage feast. What is that? Those are your steps of your wedding ceremony, right? Israel is waiting for the remarriage. The church is waiting for the bridegroom. Do you see the difference in the distinction? Failure to understand that distinction will result result in error after error after error as you read the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament. Again, I know most people don't care if they're wrong. I know that. Being wrong makes them happy in a miserable kind of way. I know that. I don't know if it was... I said this to Steve as we're driving back and forth to his um, doing his footings in his foundation. Loving the simple. God asks you in Proverbs 1, how long will you love the simple? That isn't, by the way, a good question he's asking you. How long will you love the simple? I will tell you that you can exchange the word simple for wrong. How long will you love the wrong? The wrong is always simple. Always. If you start evaluating the wrong, you will see that it is always the simple one. The truth has a 
has a level to it that is extraordinary. How long will you love the simple? How long will you love the wrong? I know people want to love the wrong. Makes them happy. Gets them a lot of money. Okay, again, let's read these together and accomplish getting them into the record and into our minds. And this is what? This is teaching by repetition. This is forcing you to do something you don't want to do. And that's good teaching right there. This is rote. This is drudgery. This is painful. All things that work good. Okay, so we're going to read step eight. And I'm going to watch you read it with me. So get your bulletin. Put it in your hands. Let me see all your shining little faces. If you don't have a bulletin, um, John will get you one right now. Okay, if you haven't passed out. It's okay if you're passed out. You're still eligible for food later. Step eight. The bridegroom departs to prepare a home for the bride. John 14, 1 through 3, Christ even says that. He says it word for word. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm the bridegroom. In my Father's house are many mansions, right? He's trying to say, I am the bridegroom. This is all based on the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Do you want to know why I'm going? It's based on the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Do you want to know when I'm coming back? It's based on the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. If you don't know that, you'll have some crazy idea and you will get nothing right in the book of Revelation. Nothing. But you'll build a large church. So it's... Hard to stop them. The bride is set apart, is consecrated. Step nine. The groom's father gives permission for the son to go to the bride. Mark 13, 32. Does it mean that that the son is not God? No. It's part of the process, the template upon which he has based this. Step ten. The shofar is blown. The bridegroom returns with a shout. Behold, the bridegroom comes. I didn't say that right, did I? Behold, the bridegroom comes. Every time you see behold, something extraordinary in the Bible is coming next. What's coming next there? The bridegroom comes. That's extraordinary. Blessed is he who comes. Step 11, the bridegroom abducts the bride for a seven. It's not seven days, it's a seven. The word is used in Daniel as a seven. Step 12, (coughs) a marriage supper is given for guests invited by the father of the bride. (coughs) A friend of the bridegroom relays the news to those invited. Okay? And hopefully, as you heard that and read along, and I want you to hear it and read it along, you're going to need to know it at some point in your life. Something tragic is going to happen to you. Something sad is going to happen to you. And the only place you can go for an answer is where? The Bible. It's the only answer place there is. There's no other answer place. And if you don't know how to unlock Scripture, you're going to spiral. And I know that. I see these kids go to college and come back in body bags. They're a disaster one after another. There's no 
nothing left of their lives. There's no honor. There's no obedience. There's no desire. Dickie Schooler, the guy that would try to tip over the band lift on everybody, used to scream at at all of us, where is the fear of God? There is no fear of God in this country very much anymore. Not in our kids. Nowhere. We have whole generations that have grown up with no fear of God in them. Because we have had churches, among other things, that have just left the scholarship aside in order to pervert themselves towards, I don't know, money, probably. But hopefully, as you read that, you'll get it in there. At least you'll know it exists so you can find it when you're in trouble. And you started to ask the obvious questions. I wanted them to come flying off the page and whoop y'all aside the head because... I want you to find also the most obvious of the obvious questions and see if you could find that as well. And if you didn't find it, just start out by asking why. Let's just start with this. Why is the pattern designed this way? Why did he pick this order? It's got to be a perfect design and a perfect order. He's omniscient God. But why this order? Why is the bride price second? Okay. Why is the bride and groom betrothed third? Why didn't you prepare the contract first? Then we'll give gifts. Okay, well, that's, that's, why does she have to give her consent? Why isn't that three? In other words, why the order? Why the design in the first place? Why does the bridegroom have to depart? What's that about? Why does he have to depart? What is the meaning of the Father's permission? What is the relationship between the week of the consummation and what other seven is so special in Scripture? Because there's a special Scripture. It's Daniel 9.24. It talks about a seven. What is the relationship between the week of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony and the 70th week of Daniel 9.24? Why does the bridegroom have to come in the middle of the night and abduct the bride away? It's a catching up. It is a taking. Again, what is so special after that? Behold, what great truth is in the phrase, the bridegroom comes. The bridegroom comes. Very complex sentence that follows the behold, as you should expect. I submit that the most obvious of the obvious questions, though, is the second shofar. Because it says the shofar is blown. That's the second shofar. You saw the shofar. What is the shofar? It's the ram's horn. It is the ram's horn from where in the Bible? It is the ram that is caught in the thicket when Abraham takes his beloved son Isaac up the mountain. There's a ram caught in the thicket. And that ram is sacrificed in place of Isaac. And that ram had how many horns on it? Two shofars. The first one is blown where? I'll read it to you. We have, well, we have six minutes. I have plenty of time. I will read it to you. It's in Exodus 19. I could read to you Genesis 22 where he found the, the ram with the shofar, but you all know that, don't you? Okay, so we don't have to read that. 
Now let's read Genesis or Exodus 19. So you see the first time the shofar was born or was blown. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning. Oh, you'd expect it to be born, blown on the third day of the morning, right? And there were thunder, thunderings and lightnings. Thunderings, by the way, has a relationship to language and a thick cloud on the mountain. Okay, there's fire and language. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what happens in Acts at the betrothal of the church. This is a wedding ceremony. It's exa- the two are on the same very same day. The church is betrothed and Israel is married, right? The sound of the shofar was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That is the first shofar, the first ram's horn. The second shofar is where you're supposed to be. When's the second one going to be blown? It's going to be blown. I heard a a voice barely. It's not your fault. It's too many years with with, uh, worm drive saws and locomotives. The second one comes uh, in Thessalonians 4. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4. I will read that to you. Now there's some argument about this. Uh, don't uh, Some say it will come in Revelation 4. And that could be. Uh, but I think the strongest case is made at First uh, Thessalonians 4:15 through 18. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. The reason why is because I know these shofars are going to be blown in what kind of context? The first one was blown in Exodus 19. In what context? A marriage ceremony pattern context. When is the second one going to be blown? In a marriage ceremony context. That's why First Thessalonians 4, right? Because it's all based on what? The marriage ceremony pattern. If you have the marriage ceremony pattern, you figure out these kinds of things. If you don't have it, you don't know things that, that are really pretty clear. God didn't hide them. How long will you love the wrong? For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. What's the obvious question? What was shouted? Something got shouted what? With the voice of of an archangel and with the trumpet or the shofar of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air because he is the bridegroom and we are the what? The bride. Not the wife, the bride. There's a whole bunch of people that think the church is who? Israel. We're not Israel. They're the wife. We're the bride. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What did the archangel shout? He obviously shouts, Behold, the bridegroom comes, and blessed is he who comes. What did those two phrases really mean? They mean extraordinary things. Why does he shout those two things? He could shout anything. He shouts those. Why? What does the, why does the shofar, and I gave that away, sound here? And add that to the father of the bride question from last week, right? Who is the father of the bride? Do you remember that? A bride price is established and agreed upon by the father and the son. Who's the father of the bride? Did you answer that? Because we'll answer that next week too. Let's rise and be dismissed.